Chapter 35 Outlaws They travelled north, following the shoreline, and saw no sign of habitation. Leah swam in the sea, and the water did not burn her skin. Gradually, she felt her lungs unfurl, drawing clean air into dirt-logged places. Ildachach was beautiful, although probably no more beautiful than her own world had once been. The sea changed colour by the minute under a windswept sky, and the horses turned their heads from little squalls of rain that gusted past as quickly as they had come. Birds wheeled and dived along the coast. Leah counted razor bills and guillemots and arctic terns, but there were many more that she could not name, and the hedgerows were knotted with flowers. She paused to watch a pair of yellow and black caterpillars, striped like Kilkenny hurlers, climbing the stem of a ragwort plant. Poilon lifted one onto the back of his hand, and it undulated between his knuckles. Do you know these? They will build a chrysalis, and turn into moths with cinnabar wings. Poilon gently replaced the caterpillar on the ragwort. The plant that they eat is poisonous to horses and cattle. In your world, it was probably eliminated long before you were born. Hobie wandered over and looked hungrily at the ragwort. Go on, said Leah, have some. He had kicked her that morning when she was catching her mare, and Hobie was not the sort of pony that would kick somebody by accident. He declined the ragwort and tore hungrily at the grass by her feet. Leah stepped cautiously away. They walked and rode, and then dismounted and rode again. The bond between Ronan and Foylon was like a physical presence. They need to be alone, Aid explained quietly. Many days. Is that your tradition? asked Leah, wondering if this was the she version of a honeymoon. More than tradition, it is necessary. Leah remembered what Kit had said about love being dangerous for the she. She wondered if Ronan knew the extent of his responsibility and thought that he probably did, but could think of nothing that she could say to reassure the brothers. On the path ahead, Ronan and Foylon walked between their mounts, deep in talk. Their energy crackled about them like an electric storm. Foylon stopped to show Ronan something in the ditch. A tiny well, overhung by ferns, bubbled from a bed of pebbles. He parted the curtain of ferns with his hand and showed him the alcove where a small brown snake lay curled between the damp stones. Its eyes were red as garnets. You have snakes? Yes, said Foylon. We have snakes. There was a distracted expression in his eyes and Ronan felt a sudden urge to protect him although he did not know from what. Foylon took his hand, reciting in a low voice. O sages standing in God's holy fire, as in the gold mosaic of a wall, come from the holy fire, burn in a jar, and be the spinning master of my soul. Ronan remembered the poem from school. It's singing, not spinning, 
the singing masters, plural. The written poem is not always the true one, Huelon said. Ronan did not know what was going on, but he put his arms around the she and held him, sternum to sternum, until their heartbeats slowed. The spinning master of my soul. When they looked up, the others had disappeared down the road. Come on, said Ronan, mounting. We'd better catch up. If Waylon had been in his right mind, he could have told Ronan that his spirit was scattering like dandelion seed on the wind. Love for the she involved an almost total loss of self. If Waylon survived the imprinting phase, it would change him at a cellular level that was hard for the human mind to grasp. This required privacy, seclusion and rest, and every day that they spent on the road was putting him at risk. Voilon's brothers were increasingly concerned, but they did not have the language to explain. They were jumpy, continually on the watch for Togon scouts or members of their own clan. We are exile, Ed said heavily. Outlaw. Their days were divided between travel, foraging and rest. Leah learned where to look for sorrel and samphire, wild onion and three-cornered leek, and a tough little succulent that grew on sandy beaches. The brothers gathered mussels from the rocks, and Foylon went fishing, alone and without any obvious equipment. He came back damp with a large silvery fish. Leah wondered if it was a salmon. Mullet, said Foylon, who knew the name for almost everything. They lit a fire on the beach that night, wrapped the fish in dampened leaves and roasted it in the embers. This is your seventh night in Ildahuk, said the glyph, as Leah prepared for sleep. Didn't you tell me that last night? she asked sleepily. No, said the glyph, you are beginning to lose your sense of time. Leah had a vague sense that she was supposed to care about this, but she didn't. Something nudged at the back of her mind. She and Rona needed to talk, but she couldn't remember why. By morning, the wind had changed, and the sharp sea breeze brought with it a sense of purpose. Aid mounted his horse and climbed onto the ridge that followed the line of the coast, keeping watch. They could see his silhouette against the skyline, hunting bow strapped to his back as the horse picked its way between the rocks. Every now and then he whistled, in the way that the she did when they wished to communicate over distance. It seemed to Leah that this was an extension of their language. Leah had a remarkable facility for languages. She was fluent in Italian and Japanese, and had always reckoned that it took her a week to pick up the basics, and two weeks before she could have a conversation. The she language was different, and far more difficult, but she could understand quite a lot of it already and was learning how to make the sounds. It was no use practising on Foylon, who spoke better English than she did and liked to show off. But Foylon was increasingly withdrawn, so she spent most of her time with his brothers. Their English was basic, and they were more than happy to talk to her and she. The coast is clear, said Trian, riding beside her. So far we have not been followed. Where are we going? 
There is a place, he said cryptically. We found it when we were young. If it is still safe, they will stay there, my brother and yours. He made a gesture that Leah interpreted as frustration. If they were she, we would say that each will become the other. But your brother is not she, so we do not know the outcome. All of this left her none the wiser about where they were going and when they were going to get there, but she was less anxious about it than she might have been. Her mind, accustomed to restless projections into the future and the past, was strangely calm. She was aware that there were problems, and that they would need to be resolved, but most of the time she thought about nothing beyond the moment that she was in. People meditate for years to feel like this, she thought. At last they reached their destination. The cove was not visible from the cliff, and if Aid had not recognised an outcrop of rocks above them, they would have walked right past it. Even so, it took him several minutes of searching through the firs bushes to the seaward side of the road before he found the path. They dismounted. It looked at a glance to be impassably steep, but the horses followed them unquestioningly, placing their feet with care. The path zigzagged so sharply that Ronan, foolishly glancing below, saw Aid's horse directly below his own and the glint of water far, far below. It was worse than Isola's nest. He swallowed hard and walked on, looking determinedly at his feet. Trian came last, brushing away droppings and broken twigs and any other traces of their passing. There was a cave above the tide line where a freshwater stream trickled through a hidden cavity and pooled between the rocks. The horses drank thirstily. They fed them and pulled driftwood across the mouth of the cave. We will leave them here for the night, Trian said. The cove was sandy, accessible only by the path down which Ronan could not believe that they had come, and, apart from the cave, there was no apparent shelter. The wind and the tide were rising, and waves broke over the rocks, massed red in the low evening light. It felt more than a little bleak. Both Ronan and Leah assumed that they would sleep on the beach that night, but the she shouldered the saddlebags and set off across the rocks. Scrambling after, they crested the ridge and looked down onto another cove, smaller than the first. There, on the beach below them, was an enormous wooden shipwreck. Leah rubbed her eyes in disbelief. It was a majestic vessel, almost fifty metres long, wedged upright in the sand. Its decks were raised at the stern, stacked like layers of a cake, so that it gave the impression of sloping down towards the bow. The rising tide lapped around its hull, but its pointed prow stretched landward, a ghost ship that had reached the sand and kept on sailing. It's a Spanish galleon, said Ronan, who had once made an airfix model of a similar-looking ship. A warship. It's the Dawn Treader, said Leah, remembering Narnia. It seemed to her like a storybook ship. Not really. Ronan had a very literal mind. The Dawn Treader had a single mast. This one has four. What's really interesting is the way that the timber has been preserved. 
It's very old. While they were talking, the three she had disappeared into the vessel. The light was fading, and the ship would soon be surrounded by water. Ghost ship or not, it was where they were going to spend the night. There was a hole in the hull through which they clambered, crabs scuttling out of their path. The timbers were green with seaweed, and mollusks hung in clusters from the beams. They climbed carefully up a slippery ladder and emerged onto the lower deck. Here, the timbers were weathered and broken, but there was no sign of rot. Ronan went in search of the she, while Leah explored the decks. It had been a kingly ship, designed for splendour as well as war. The masts were broken, but the upper deck, at the stern of the ship, was surrounded with carvings, heraldic lions with curly tails, round-breasted women who reminded her of Mayan fertility symbols, and masks that looked like river gods. She touched their wavy hair and thought that she could see traces of paint, but could not identify the hardwood from which they were carved. Whatever it was, it had stood the test of time. Ronan is right, she thought. There must be something in Aldahach that slows decay. These would never have lasted so long in our world, and in any case, they would have long since been plundered. But the she had little interest in objects and had left them alone. Hearing voices below, Leah climbed down the staircase to the great cabin where Aid and Trian were shucking oysters with their teeth. Ronan and Foylon emerged from the hold, carrying a small wooden cask. Brandy, Ronan said. We had to test a couple of them. This one's good. They ate raw food that night, and each of the she drank enough brandy to kill a human being, with no obvious effect. Foylon, Leah asked, chewing on seaweed. How did the ship come to be here? It is a human ship, Foylon said. When our worlds divided, your species had already made their mark. Human buildings are common in Ildahach, but I have not heard of another ship like this one. My brothers and I found it when we were young and we told nobody, mainly because of the brandy. But we think that it is a safe place where nobody will find us. Will you always have to hide? I hope not. We need to be alone for a while, but when that is over, we will travel to the Parliament of the Shi and ask to be accepted back into the clan. Then there will be a debate. That is, if Ronan will stay in Ildahach, there is still a choice. Foylon turned to Ronan and began to talk to him in Shi, urgently and at length. Ronan didn't understand it, but he also recognised by the fragmented look in Foylon's eyes, that he was not necessarily making sense. Look at me, Ronan said. Foylon met his gaze and his breathing began to settle. I am not going back, Ronan said. He had said this several times already, but it seemed to be something that Foylon needed to hear repeatedly. Ronan understood the importance of repetition. As a small child, he had driven his parents to distraction by requesting the same bedtime story every night, three years running. Now, he refilled the drinking bowl with brandy and passed it to Foylon, who drained it, muttered something unintelligible 
curled up under the table and went to sleep. 